Have you ever dreamed about selling everything you owned and moving across the world to begin a new life? In this episode, we're chatting with Rachel Neighbors, an American abroad on the React core team in London. We'll chat about the pros and cons of moving abroad, as well as the logistics. Let's get started. Welcome to the Ladybug Podcast. I'm Kelly. I'm Allie. And I'm Emma. And we're debugging the tech industry. AWS Amplify is a suite of tools and services that enables developers to build full-stack serverless and cloud-based web and mobile apps using their framework or technology of choice on the front end. Using Amplify, you can quickly get up and running with things like hosting, authentication, managed GraphQL, serverless functions, APIs, machine learning, chatbots, and storage for files like images, videos, and PDFs. Amplify is built especially in a way to enable traditionally front-end developers like myself to be successful because they can use their existing skill set to build real-world full-stack apps that in the past would require deep knowledge around back-end, DevOps, and scalable infrastructure. The Amplify console then allows you to use the GitHub repository to deploy a globally available CDN with CI and CD built in. To learn more, visit aws-amplify.github.io. Awesome. So welcome, Rachel. I'm super excited to chat with you again. I know this has been a long time coming. We've talked about doing this episode. Hey, Emma. It's so good to be here. I'm glad we could finally do this. Awesome. Do you? We also have Allie on the line today. I, hey. Welcome, Allie. Hey. <laughs> um, I, why don't we just get started chatting about our experiences moving abroad? I'm going to let Rachel go first since you are our esteemed guest. So, Rachel, why don't you tell us a little more about your experience living abroad? Oh, wow. So interesting thing. A couple years back, I was uh, I was just coming down off a stint at Microsoft and had an opportunity to work on design systems in Amsterdam. So I, uh, having traveled and spoken around the world for like six years, I knew Amsterdam was one of my favorite cities, had high concentration of awesome people I loved, and I really enjoyed the food and culture there. So it seemed like a great next step. I did that for a year, had a bunch of life changes hit that made me think, hmm, maybe I want to roll the dice and try again. So I joined the React Core team and started working on site in London, yet another big European city. Very different from Amsterdam. And that's where I'm calling in from today. That's so exciting. I love London, but I remember when we chatted at a conference, you saying that you didn't like London as much as Amsterdam. How do you, do you still feel that way? <laughs> there are two kinds. <laughs> I'm curious, like, why? Like, what about London do you not like as much? I think there's like two or three kinds of people people who love New York City, people who love London, and people who love Amsterdam. Amsterdam has a little small town feel to it comparatively. Like, it's not as big and sprawling as London, but it's still got just as many people from all over the world. It's a little smaller, a little cutesier, and a little bit more affordable. Uh, and additionally, it's just so much easier to get to anywhere else in the world if you live in Amsterdam or in the outskirts of Amsterdam. It's like a 30-minute high light, light rail trip to an international airport. Whereas in London, you're kind of like on the tube, in a bus. Okay, now you're hauling. It's it's like it takes forever to get to the big airports. So it really feels like you're in the sprawl. And New York City is a completely different vibe all its own because it's very American. It has those Dutch roots. So I feel like you have a very kind of a Dutch mentality in New York. If you like that New Yorker kind of like I'm walking here kind of feel, you probably get on great with the Dutch. <laughs> Uh, but New York is also sort of like its own island. Whereas when you're in London, you can hop over uh, the channel to get to all of Europe or easily just head back over the Atlantic to visit the big cities in the United States. 
when you're in New York, you're kind of limited to New York and Philadelphia because the United States isn't as well connected to uh, itself or the rest of the world as you would get over here in Europe. So these are very similar cities in many ways, but they're also very different from each other. So different vibes. Yeah, I t- yeah, that totally makes a lot of sense because I, well, let me just quickly relay my experience living abroad. So I studied abroad when I was a junior in college and I studied in London for three months. I loved it. I love the rain, although it didn't rain when I was there. <laughs> um, and then, so I was kind of knew I wanted to move abroad. And then I lived in Germany after my first real job. I sold everything and I moved to Germany. Uh, I lived there about two and a half years. I was in Karlsruhe, which is an hour from Frankfurt. So it took like an hour to hour and a half train to get to a major airport to fly anywhere. Um, And then two months ago, I moved to Stockholm in Sweden. So I've really been enjoying that. And a little later in the episode, we'll delve into kind of the details, pros and cons of each of these places to live. Um, But yeah, So, Allie, do you have experience living abroad? I do not have experience living abroad. That being said, I have been mostly location independent for the last almost year and a half, I think. So what that means is that I have not, for the most part, had an apartment. I have been mostly living out of Airbnbs and with friends. And so I've been working remote. And that has allowed me to have a lot of flexibility um, of not necessarily living in one place. I feel like for a while last year, I was uh, living at conferences <laughs> because I had so many speaking <laughs> gigs lined up that I was like in hotels every week for those. And so I didn't have an apartment. I would just crash with my parents if I didn't have a conference at that that time. And then after that, once conference season wound down, I lived out at Airbnbs and you get a huge discount if you live there for a month at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would just do that and live out of different cities for a while. And then I technically moved to New York City um, at the beginning of the pandemic, but <laughs> um, it was a little bit hard to not know anybody and be locked in an apartment for um, a couple of months. So after that, I ended up moving in with my boyfriend in Chicago. So um, yeah, I don't even know where I legally live now, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but <laughs> it's kind of cool. And I think I would go back to living out at Airbnbs if my boyfriend was location or if he didn't have like a in-person job. Well, that's cool that we all kind of have similar yet different experiences. And this kind of ties into the next section where I want to discuss what an immigrant versus an expat versus a digital nomad are. What That wasn't a real sentence, but you know what I mean. So let's talk a little bit about these three terms. Um, I'm going to let Rachel describe the difference between immigrant and expat because I think that you did a fantastic job before we started recording. So Rachel, can you explain the difference between an immigrant and an expat for us, please? Sure. Happy to. Uh, so I actually wasn't even aware that there that there was like a distinction between these terms before I moved to Amsterdam, where I worked at Booking and they hire from all over the world. So I was working with people from Brazil. I was working with people from like uh, Borneo, just all kinds of places. And this came up in conversation one or two times that, you know, like many places in the world, there are people from around the world moving to uh, the Netherlands. And some of those people are referred to by the locals as immigrants, and some are called expats. And if you are a high earner, preferably from a first world country, you may decide to move back to, you are an expat. 
You have a home. It's just not here. You're a welcome visitor in the country. Maybe if you earn enough, you'll even be welcomed as a native one day. But if you are, for instance, a refugee or you're like someone from a further eastern country or a undesirable location, uh, typically seen as a lower earner, you're probably going to get slapped with the label immigrant, which is kind of a, a dirty word. Uh, the definition of immigrant is a person who comes to live permanently in a foreign country. And you could say that I was looking to move to another country myself back when I moved to Amsterdam. It was definitely something I wanted to do. Um, although now I'm a bit more ambivalent on that because I've kind of seen that all countries have their their downsides and their skeletons in the closet. Amsterdam, you know, the Netherlands has a number of its own for as much as I love the place. Uh, but in general, all of the things that are marketed to me, like as an American abroad there, it's like expat magazine, expat tax, you know, just expat, expat, expat. Uh, even if I were to, you know, hand in my American passport and say, I am officially a member of this country now, I'd probably still be referred to as an expat. Yeah, that's really interesting, the connotation. And I, to be honest, it was very naive when I was posting on Twitter about how I was an expat. And I, you know, there were some comments in the threads talking about the difference between an expat and an immigrant from like a connotation standpoint. And I think you summed it up pretty well. Um, so even though like the definitions are generally the same, except for the fact that an immigrant is typically uh, permanent. Um, yeah, there are definitely some negative connotations associated with the word immigrant in lieu of expat. Um, so yeah, I I don't know how I feel about that personally. Um, and I don't, yeah, I, I don't feel educated enough to have that discussion today. But I, I thought it was important that we clarified that before we moved forward. Um, but Allie, do you want to quickly talk about what a digital nomad is? Because this is also something that people listening might be really interested in, especially during the time when we're, a lot of us are working remotely. Yeah, for sure. So Digital nomads are essentially people who work remote or aren't tied to a physical location for work. And so they live in a quote-unquote nomadic manner, which means that you just move a lot, I guess, or don't have a permanent address. Or um, legally, you normally use like your parents' address or a friend's address or something like that so you can get your mail mailed to you. But other than that, you kind of live in different places at different times. So I think it's awesome because I get to experience a lot of different areas. I have to stay in the United States because of my dog. She would have to get in quarantine to go into most different countries. And I don't want to deal with that. So there's so much to see just in the United States and so many different cultures and different cities. And so I don't feel like I'm lacking mostly staying in the United States. But that's a little bit of what a digital nomad is. Yeah, definitely. And we'll get more into the pros and cons next um cons you know one of that being relocating with pets if that or children um but let's quickly let's talk about the pros because i think this is what most people think of when they think about moving abroad um so rachel do you want to start us off with one of the pros for you personally of moving abroad well so for me um I had i had a lot of different reasons why i wanted to move abroad part of it is healthcare in most um most uh, well-to-do countries in the world, your healthcare is taken care of by the state. Now, maybe if you have a big fancy employer like I do, you get some private healthcare thrown in there, which means, you know, like you get to go to the fancy clinic day of appointment instead of having to schedule it a couple weeks out. Um, but for the most part, 
it was really amazing. Um, both in, well, I mean, I like the Amsterdam system a little bit better. Uh, in London, the NHS has been sometimes a bit of a letdown. It's, it's slow, but in Amsterdam, you know, like you need to see a doctor, boom, you're seeing the doctor, boom, you're going home. You never take your wallet out. It's kind of amazing. Uh, and so if, if like for me, I, I was raised poor. And I started my career late. I've been underemployed because of the recession for like a decade. And I'm looking at like where I was raised. We had a lot of retirees. I see what happens when people run out of money in the United States and they're retired. And I'm like, man, do I want to grow old in this country? Maybe it's time for me to look at countries that take care of their citizens. And the outlook for as you get older in these countries is completely different. Like you get to be so much more chill. You get to really just focus on doing your best with your young years without freaking out about what happens if I get cancer? What happens if my kids get cancer? Oh my God, am I going to be like a six year old person to get cancer and not have millions of dollars stashed to pay for all the treatments I'm not going to be able to afford? Uh, like people used to die in my community for a lack of health care, and I don't want to go out like that. So healthcare is not a bad reason to be looking abroad, if not in your immediate present. Uh, then think about as you get older in life, where is it that you want to be seeking help? Yeah, for sure. And I want to add to this too, because when I was living in the States, my first job out of college, I was working at IBM. I had an HSA, like a health savings account. And so generally what you would do is... I don't think there was a premium necessarily, so I wouldn't pay per month, but every month I would put money into this health savings account and I would use it for health-related expenses. Um, my employer would also match it. Well, I got sick like my second month out of like joining IBM uh, and I got kidney stones really badly on a cruise ship in Mexico and I needed two surgeries. I was in the hospital like three or four times. I needed two surgeries and unfortunately they were out of network and I accrued tens of thousands of dollars what? in debt. And that is someone who is privileged to have a great healthcare plan with a great employer. Um, and I was in debt for many, many years. Um, I moved to Germany and a few months after I moved there, I needed surgery. I had an ovarian cyst and I needed to get it removed. And I was in the hospital for four days uh, and it cost me 40 euro, which is about like 30 bucks. Yeah. So yes, healthcare is massive. Although I, in Sweden and in Germany, I think because the healthcare is so good, the taxes are much higher. So I think 30, 30 to 40% of my income goes to taxes, but education is free. We'll talk more about that uh, later. Education's free. Healthcare is very, very affordable. So huge incentive. <laughs> I, actually, this reminds me, like you're in Stockholm. By the way, Stockholm is a place I would love to live. I am so fond of the Scandinavian and Nordic countries because uh, mostly I love saunas, but also because um, just I'm a cold weather person and I like not standing close to other people. And I feel like that is a cultural thing. But in Sweden, the the support around childcare and uh, like, like, I believe it's subsidized uh, daycare for your kiddos as a woman. Sweden is one of the best places to go far in your career as a woman. There's like paternity leave equal to women's maternity leave, which is if I were going to have kids, man, I would be right where we're, where you are right now. Do you want to talk a little bit about what healthcare for kiddos and women looks like in other places? Yeah, absolutely. This is so important. Actually, just two days ago, I got a new manager and she came back from parental leave. So it was really cool to see that it did not impact her career at all because there is a stigma that if women go on maternity leave, it will impact their career. I think it's more so in the U.S. than in Sweden. Um, it turns out they get four... 
parents get 480 days of parental leave. And uh, I believe that can be split between two different parents. So like her husband is also a, uh, an engineering manager at Spotify. And so they've split it. Um, but not only that, there's a monthly stipend. Um, so you actually get paid every month uh, and that goes towards your kids. Not only that, I think at the hospital, they actually send you. So I think it's traditional in Sweden after a woman has a child where the parents get to spend a night in a hotel and like actually like they get taken care of. And when you leave, supposedly, um, you get a basket full of things for your child's first year, like diapers, clothing, things of that nature. Um, yeah, it is incredible. <laughs> oh my gosh. And and compare that to what I saw growing up in the United States. Like, I didn't want to have kids in the United States. I'm still like, yeah, I don't think so. Gun violence in schools, not for me. But uh, it's just so different in some of these other countries. That said, I should say that this is not like every country, but the United States is great on this. In the Netherlands, for instance, it looks good on paper. But when you actually see it in action, women are often shortchanged by the system. Yeah, there seems to be more support from maternity leave, et cetera. But in practice, it's not as great as you would think it could be compared to someplace like Sweden. Uh, so you really, if you're thinking about, hmm, maybe I shall have some children abroad, you should probably talk to some parents in those countries to see what it's like for them, especially expat parents, because sometimes expats don't get those benefits. So you might want to talk with some people who have had their children abroad and see what that's been like for them. That's a really good point. I didn't even think about that. Let's talk quickly about learning a language. This is a big question I get all the time, especially when I lived in Germany. Sweden, not so much. But in Germany, people were like, how do you do you need to know German to survive? And um, so the question is, do you need to know the local language to succeed or to live, essentially? And the answer is, it depends. <laughs> um, so in Germany, I worked for an English-speaking company. And this is a really good tip. If you're an American looking to move abroad to a foreign country, maybe look for American companies that have offices abroad because generally their offices will speak English. And that's what I did, um, which was really cool. Also, because I got to travel back to the States um, for work trips and then also see my family because traveling back is very expensive. Um, but learning a language is really great. And both Spotify as well as Logman when I was there paid for language classes. So I don't, I didn't need to know German for the workplace. I didn't need, I don't need to know Sweden. I don't need to know Sweden. I don't need to know Swedish to work at Spotify. I also don't really need Swedish to live in Sweden. Everyone speaks very good English. Um, but I, my recommendation is always like, if you're going to live abroad, get the most out of it and learn the local language. So my opinion on that, like when I moved to Amsterdam, even though uh, in the office, everyone spoke English because it was an international crew. English was the chosen lingua franca. It's easier to find people from Brazil who speak English than people from Brazil who speak Dutch. Uh, and Dutch is, let's be honest, it's the ugly baby German and English would have. Uh, but but <laughs> it's it's. I have misophonia, and sometimes listening to teenage girls gossiping on the public transportation was just too much. I was like, no, no more. Uh, but <laughs> oh, it, it was a lot of fun. I love trying to learn the language. I, I had the textbooks. There were supportive classes, et cetera. Um, but I should also point out that I went through a huge life change. I got divorced, and I had to choose in the evenings whether I was going to spend that half hour studying my Dutch or if I was going to spend it talking to my lawyer. And I ended up spending my time on the lawyer. 
And, you know, I actually got ragged on a little bit, even though all of the Netherlands speaks perfect English and perfect multiple other languages. Um, it is a part of the, the Nederlander culture that uh, they are multilingual. And uh, I would get ragged on a bit by local people at the stores being like, oh, you speak English. When are you going to learn Dutch? Huh? And one day it was just a little much for me because, you know, sometimes people... When they had a little to drink, you'd hear the locals complain about these immigrants not learning Dutch, you know. And at one point, I actually went off on a storekeeper. I was like, do you ever think that maybe people would learn the language if they had the bandwidth for it? But maybe they're just going through a lot. I spend all my time with a lawyer because I'm getting divorced and my dad is dead. I would love to learn your language, but I just don't have the time. And I know I made that person feel really bad, but I hope that they'll think a little bit harder before they rag on somebody for not speaking Dutch. People, when they move abroad, have a lot on their plates with getting reoriented mm -hmm. and setting up their new network. And sometimes when you go abroad, you're going to encounter people negging on you because you haven't bothered to learn the language. Like, you should learn yeah. it if you can, but also if you can't, I don't think you're obligated to. Yeah, I, you know what, that's a really good point because I was really an avid learner for the first like year I was there. And then uh, I went through some really hard life changes, um, very similar to you, Rachel, and it fell to the back burner and I had to be okay with it. It's not something I wanted to do. I didn't want to push it off, um, but you have to prioritize what's truly important in your life. And for me, um, you know, I could grab a German speaking friend if I needed one to help translate, um, but I just didn't have the time. So that's, it's a really good, yeah, that's a really good point. That said, I did practice my Dutch on the people who staffed the, uh, like in the offices, there's always going to be like someone staffing the main counter who handles deliveries and, and orienting people. And I got to tell you, if you're looking to practice and you're really shy, most of the times you can find somebody on staff, like uh, in the waiting room or whatever, who's happy to banter back and forth and practice your hellos and how's the weathers. And it can be a really fun way to get to know some people who aren't, you know, your super intimidating colleagues or, you know, your landlord. Uh, so it can be fun to look for those opportunities in the office to practice your language in a really low stakes environment. Yeah. And really quickly before we keep going on some of these pros, and I want to get to pros too that Allie can contribute <laughs> to, because there are definitely some um, that are not just uh, moving abroad centric, but just uh, a couple of tools if you're looking to learn a new language. Uh, my favorite that worked the best for me was Lingoda. They have pretty good options. It is a little bit expensive. So if your employer will pay for it, that's even better. And it's often worth it to ask. Um, Lingoda was great because it was uh, a native speaker and they were all Zoom meetings. Uh, and so it alternated between grammar, reading and speaking, I think, and vocab and stuff. Um, and you would have a mix of group classes with other learners as well as one-on-one. -on -one. Um, that for me was, uh, it kept me accountable because it'll, it worked with my busy schedule. I could schedule the meetings whenever I wanted. Um, so that was nice. I, I would typically do them during my lunch break, but because I had already scheduled it, I couldn't cancel or I'd lose it. So I was accountable. Um, I originally started learning with Rosetta Stone, which again, kind of expensive. But what I've noticed with Rosetta Stone is it'll teach you out of date language. So I would learn things in German and I would say them and the Germans would actually laugh at me like we don't say that. It's really outdated. So be aware of Rosetta Stone oh. in that sense. Um, I think everyone knows about Duolingo. It's a free app, although the premium version is excellent and I highly recommend it. Babbel is another 
application as well. Um, and then if you're looking to do translations, deepl.com is incredible. They don't have every language. Unfortunately, they don't have Swedish. But instead of literally translating sentences word by word, which can often not be correct given the grammar of a, a new language, um, it'll actually translate it um, semantically. Um, so that's really, really nice. Highly recommend that. And we'll link all this in the show notes as well. Oh, I wanted to circle back. We had talked a bit about like the pros of having kids uh, abroad. I want to get into like the bonuses of having a kid grow up abroad. Oftentimes education for like as an American, me going to the Netherlands or here in London, I have to pay uh, a foreign uh, person's, uh, it costs a lot more. Let's put it that way. It's like paying out of state tuition, but more so. Uh, but if you have a child who is a citizen of that country, oftentimes the higher education uh, abroad is as valuable and more affordable than it is in the United States. So if you are thinking, man, I want a place where my kid can just grow up and go to school and forge their own paths on their own steam without having to have like $100,000 in, in debt that they'll carry with them forever – you may consider looking at the different schools abroad and what your options are there for, you know, your child when they grow up. Yeah. In Germany, college was free. Like tuition was free. You just had to get in even as a, like a, an expat. So I wasn't permanently living there. Um, I could still have gone and got my master's if I had wanted. Um, the other thing too, though, there's not as much of a stigma of not going to college, at least where I lived in Germany. The trade professions are often just as revered as the collegiate professions. And I love that mentality. Nice. I think you find a bit of that in, in the UK as well. But but this is not a conversation about the quirks of the UK, which I don't feel you can compare <laughs> to the EU. We'll save that for a different podcast. Let's carry on. <laughs> Definitely. Um, let's talk about uh, experiencing different cities. I will let Allie take over for now on this. Start us off because you've lived in a lot of different cities. Yeah, for sure. So I personally really love it because I'm a super outdoorsy person. Like I go on hikes every weekend and I rock climb a lot and being outside is a huge part of my life. And so um, I normally try to go to cities where there's a big outdoor culture, like Asheville, um, North Carolina, or even like, it's kind of surprising, but Chicago has a lot of that too. Like we live on the lake or the lake is like pretty close. And so there's a lot to do with that. So that's something that's really valuable to me and something that you can experience something very different in different cities. Um, and I'm trying to go to all the national parks. That's one of my big life goals. So I try to live in cities close to those and be able to get outdoors to those every weekend or most weekends. So I really like it because it allows me to see something new and like get new food and um, meet new people and try new things. Never gets boring. So that's my favorite thing with it. Though I will say settling down in a city is now just like have a little bit of FOMO for traveling and being like <laughs> comparing all the different cities. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's nice that you can kind of get a feel for different places. I wouldn't say I moved around a lot, but I was able to travel a lot because travel in the EU is so much cheaper. Like in Germany, we would drive to Italy for the weekend. We'd go to like Como. Um, you could take a, you know, a 20... Their flight from Frankfurt to um, London was 24 euro round trip direct. Um, I mean... 
it's, I think last year I, I visited like 10 different countries and a lot of that was for conferences. Like I'm really bad about taking vacation. That's not for conferences, but, um, yeah. So unlike Ali, I didn't move to a bunch of different cities, but I did get to go visit a lot. I think visiting and moving around to different cities is actually really valuable. Like I tell people that right now I'm looking for my nest where it is. I'm going to set up shop because I've been through a lot. You know, I've lost family members. I've restarted as a single person. And after many years of traveling the world and speaking and, you know, living for months and even years in different cities in the United States, as well as the rest of the world, I now feel like I'm in a position to actually figure out where it is I want to like make my home and there is nothing wrong with taking your time and traveling. I think it's like inbuilt to all humans to have a little bit of wanderlust uh, at different periods of their life to find out where it is that that feels like home for them. Yeah, for sure. And I think you should definitely come visit Stockholm once things calm down. <laughs> I'd love to. It is. It's honestly, when I visited it, it wasn't ever a city I cared to visit. And I showed up and I'm like, I want to live here someday. Now that I'm here, I'm like, this would honestly be my forever home. Like I have no plans to move back to the States at all. People ask me that a lot. Like, do you want to go back to the States? And my answer is absolutely not. <laughs> I would love to visit, but I don't want to raise a family in the States. And I would be heartbroken if I left Europe. I would be less heartbroken to leave London. I got to say, it's a great place if you are young and in in university, it's great. But as you get older and more people in their 30s and 40s move out of the city, it kind of becomes uh, an interaction desert. Um, mm. And that has been a disappointment for me compared to places like Amsterdam, which to Ali's point about being an outdoorsy person, I adored Amsterdam because if you wanted to go be outdoors, you could just jump onto your bike and there would be dedicated bike roads into the countryside. And you could just go all out for two hours and find yourself in a little seaside town and eat fish and chips. And I, I mm -hmm. adored it. I learned uh, enough, uh, enough Dutch to be able to go out with the local birding crews and learn the names of the local <laughs> birds. That's another good reason for learning the local language. If you want to have a social life, it helps. Uh, and so yeah, I loved that way of life and I, I miss that. And I know there's not much like that in the United States outside, maybe like Portland, where you can have a similar yeah. kind of car free cosmopolitan lifestyle in a small yeah. town. Feel. I haven't ha owned a car since like 2018. That was, it wait, hold on. Wait, no, before it's been, it's been longer than that. I say that out loud and I'm like, nope. Um, but I haven't owned a car in many years and, uh, I haven't felt the need to buy one, which is really cool. But I will say to the language learning point, I loved actually not knowing the local language because I was not distracted as easily. And now I go back to the States and I pick up, I like eavesdrop in every conversation. I can't focus. So there are benefits to not knowing the language, but, um, let's talk quickly about, different cultures, because this is a huge, huge pro. This is probably my biggest pro of moving abroad was experiencing different cultures. Um, Rachel, what's your take on this? Like, do you feel like you've been exposed to new cultures moving abroad? And if so, how has that impacted you? Well, yes and no. You have to remember, I was like traveling and speaking at conferences all over the place. So I was getting a lot of exposure um, to that. And Ali, as a person who's like, going to many conferences, even in the United States, you're meeting people from around the world who are traveling to be at those events. Definitely. But nothing can quite give you the feeling of what it's like to be a stranger in someone else's home, like it is to be a uh, to be a, an expat 
or an immigrant. And I would say that actually helped me build a lot of empathy. I came from a small town community that was very like, well, why do you move here and you're not learning the language? And now I have actually been the person who's like, maybe I'm not learning the language because it's irrelevant to my life situation. And I have a very different viewpoint now from the one that I grew up with and from the people in my hometown community that I would not have gained if I had not gone, gone out abroad and met other people in similar situations and learned about their life experiences. And it's also helped me realize some of the things that I value about uh, American culture that isn't present in other cultures. For instance, in the United States, we have way more dialogue around racism and sexism than you'll find in cultures like uh, the Netherlands, where there are a lot of policies that would make it seem as though the the local culture was very advanced and had moved beyond that. But you'll find that the conversations are actually like two decades behind in some situations. Yeah, that's a really good take on it. Um, I guess to your point, I definitely learned to empathize with people a little bit more and be patient and recognize that if someone is speaking a second language, they're very courageous. It takes a lot of courage. It took me a very long time to speak German. And even then, like, think about if you've ever seen someone who is not a native English speaker, give it a conference talk. It's scary to give a conference talk in general. Imagine giving that in a second language. You have to, especially if you're not fluent, you have to memorize, uh, a lot of what you're going to say. Absolutely. Like that takes a lot of guts. And I got to say, if you're working with international teams, this experience really, really makes the difference in how you communicate and coordinate with your colleagues. I think also Americans don't realize, but we're a lot more homogenous uh, than we think we are in terms of like our personalities, our openness, our communication styles. And when, for instance, I have learned that if I'm working with somebody from a certain background, uh, you know, like um, Romania, I might be able to like, ah, yes, I have an entire book on, it's called, I think, Culture Map, which is all about (laughs) how communication styles have different variations in different areas of the world. For instance, um, there's low context communication and high context communication. Japanese is more high context culture. So when you uh, speak together, a lot more is understood. And American business people are often frustrated, at least back in the 1980s, when communicating with Japanese business people because they'd feel like, yeah, we agreed to that, right? But that was not what the Japanese business people understood. They understood that, you know, we were discussing it. And there's all these kind of wires that you can get crossed. But I think working um, with more people, working abroad, being exposed, like, ah, things don't work in other countries the way they do in the United States. And you have to flex. You can't just show up and be like, let's do things my way. You're not doing it my way, so you must be wrong. It's like, no, you have to flex and adapt to other people, their backgrounds, their expectations. You have to try to understand where someone else is coming from. You really have to, because this is their playing field, or you're all equals here. And I think it's a great challenge. And it's one we just don't get a lot of in the United States. It's funny that you brought up the culture map, because later in the season, uh, we've already recorded this episode, but it's all about uh, the culture map and how different cultures communicate, collaborate, give feedback. So if you're interested in learning more about, you know, how different cultures communicate, because to Rachel's point, Americans, you know, we like to think that we're a melting pot, but at the end of the day, we all have our cultural communication um, 
like how we grow up. It definitely impacts how we communicate and collaborate. Definitely check out that episode uh, a little bit later in the season. Um, but yeah, just to kind of keep this going, because we do have to talk about the cons of moving abroad, and there are quite a few. Um, what about uh, how does international experience look on a resume? I think, Rachel, you wrote this down, right? Oh, uh, this is actually a pro. Um, I think this is one of the things that I considered when I was uh, talking with my personal advisory board, which is kind of like what I do instead of having one mentor. I have a bunch of mentors that I meet with just a little bit less often. Um, when I was moving abroad, I was like, well, you know, it won't be in the United States. It's the tech sector. That's the best place to push your career forward. But one of the great points that uh, one of my advisors brought up was um, international experience is really useful on a resume whenever you might have to work with people from international backgrounds, which guess what? In tech happens quite a bit. And being able to point on your resume and say, yeah, you know, I am totally uh, qualified to be a manager of this team of people from around the world because I worked in two different cities uh, in different countries and I already work with people from different cultures and look at how good I am at flexing my communication skills. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely something good to have on your resume. Um, yeah, we've talked a lot about, there are so many pros to moving abroad and I, I only think we've touched the surface at this point, but I don't think people think about the cons of moving abroad when they consider it. It just seems very much like a, a romantic idea, and it is. And I don't want to downplay that, but there are definitely cons. Um, Allie, I'm going to ask you, like, what do you have any cons of being a digital nomad? Yeah, I mean, I think the big one is loneliness to some extent because you're not in one place long enough to really make friends there, or at least I haven't been. So it's one of those things where you'll meet people and you'll talk to people, but you don't necessarily have like long lasting friendships. And so there's definitely a loneliness to that. I think that that's the biggest one. And just the sense of you're always moving. So there's no real like nesting or <laughs> permanence anywhere that you live. Um, so I think that those are the two big cons, but yeah, I've been nesting hard. I don't think I could be digital nomad. Like I nest hard and I have my cats and like all that stuff. Uh, Rachel, what about you? Do you have any cons of moving abroad? Not a lot, actually. As a person who likes moving, like being abroad, I know a lot of my friends these days are like, yeah, we're thinking about moving abroad. I feel like every four years I hear this from my friends. Yeah, United States is really tough. We're thinking about moving abroad. And I'm always like, are you sure about that? Um so one of the major reasons why moving abroad might not be a great idea is politics. Um, when you are a visitor in another person's home, you don't get a say in how that home is run, what wallpaper they put up, your visitor. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, so usually as Americans, we're kind of used to like, I vote, I have a say, everybody listen to me, Right. Well, I've been sent back at the uh, at the UK border at London Heathrow for various visa issues that you know, there's no visa for speaking in the UK. Let's put it that way. Uh, there's a reason why most speakers lie and say they're there on a vacation when they come to the UK, because it's a really tricky area. Uh, and I, I can't like I, I live here now, but I don't get to vote. I don't get to have impact. I can write to MPs, but they know I can't vote. So my voice means nothing. Um, I can still go back and vote in the United States with mail-in ballots, but I have less impact here. I can't run for office, can't support people who run for office. My name might not mean anything on a petition. 
there's all kinds of reasons in which, uh, ways in which I just don't get a say now. And nowhere was this more apparent than in the Netherlands. There is this thing called the 30% ruling, which means as a highly paid, valuable worker from another nation, you don't pay tax on your first 30% of income. This helps offset those gigantic taxes we've mentioned for having all these luxuries that you get when you, you enter into a country like some of the ones in the EU. And this was very attractive. Originally, this ruling would last for your first eight years in the country. And a lot of people, including some American colleagues of mine, had moved to the Netherlands, had children, bought houses, set their mortgages up, anticipating they would have this tax-free 30% income. That's like an additional 10, 15 grand a year. And they, they set up their mortgages and everything like this. Then guess what? The year I got there, well, the Netherlands is feeling a little shaky on this globalization thing. There's a lot of new immigrants coming in. Locals are starting to feel like we're giving too many handouts. So a bunch of politicians ran this thing where it's like, let's reduce the 30% ruling to five years and let's do it retroactively. And people voted and it got passed. I think there were some ameliorations built in, but it really scared the bejesus out of my colleagues who had set their watches by this promise that the government had made them. And then the government turned around and did a take back seat. I mean, my friends had no say in that. They, they just, they, you know, went all in on the Dutch dream. And then it got turned around on them and it had financial repercussions. So this is an example of you might feel safe because you've been safe your whole life. Everything, you've always had to say, you've always been able to appeal. But when you are abroad, even landlords will start, will many times treat you differently from the locals because they know you don't speak the language. You're not going to read the contract. They can take you for a ride. So there are reasons why being, uh, being abroad means you have less impact, less say, uh, and you end up following more than leading. You don't get to cause as much change as you might like to see or are used to having. Yeah, I that's not something I actively thought about, to be honest, but it scares the heck out of me. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think for me too, uh, the prospect of ever getting let go from a job, well, first of all, I don't know, in Europe, but at least in Germany and Sweden, I've had six months probationary periods mm. where after six months, your uh, progress has been, it's evaluated and either the employer or the employee can walk away. No harm, no foul. In the States, you get hired, but you can also get fired really quickly. So there's more job security in Europe. That being said, if I were to get fired from my job in Europe, granted, they'd have to have a good reason, but that would mean my visa is gone and I would have to leave the country. So like, that's definitely uh, a big one as well. Yeah. And in periods where everyone's kind of like, oh, I don't know what the ec economics are going to do. My visa, if I don't find a new job in the UK in two months, I have to leave or a team shows up and deports me. I have to take my entire household and move it back to the United States. That's a huge expense. So I have like a two months turnaround fund, which is the cost of taking my life and shipping it back to the US and two months living expenses just in case that happens. Yeah, that's super smart. Um, let's talk about LGBTQA issues. Rachel, I'm going to let you tackle this. Well, this is another thing. I, I know a number of these friends are like, so yeah, I'm thinking about leaving the U.S. every four years. Uh, they, there are all these lovely countries that will offer you some great tax breaks, et cetera, you know, very attractive to um, some wealthy Americans. But you also have to think, like, what's this country scorecard when it comes to um, 
well, like, is your gay best friend going to be able to come visit you or is it illegal for them to exist? Uh, Russia is a place where this is a major problem. Um, you might be attracted to some of the lower prices in some cultures and countries, but if you, you should really do your research on what is okay and what isn't there because there are places in the world where it could be illegal for some of your family members to come see you. They could be put at risk. And things happen while you live abroad. Both my parents died while I was abroad. And that life changes will happen to you as you are traveling and living. So you have to ask yourself, you know, like maybe you're not thinking, oh, well, you know, um, that couldn't happen to me. That 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 situation is highly unlikely. But you'd be surprised when you're going to be like, oh, this is a really dangerous situation here. I can't take care of this relative because they can't get to me or I can't have them come to me to take care of me. Um, and definitely, I mean, this is more like a, a warning to, you know, cishet people who aren't thinking about these things, because I'm pretty sure that the LGBTQA community is familiar with the drawbacks of international travel. I just wanted to remind folks who maybe this hadn't occurred to them that sometimes your choice of location really limits your social circles. Definitely. Just for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with what a cis person is, could you just quickly define that? Uh, it means that you, oh my gosh, you're asking me to do this. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Cisgendered, it's cisgendered heterosexual person is the long form. Yeah, um, yeah it means that you are uh, currently, how do I put this? You are um, identifying as the gender you were assigned at birth and you engage in heteronormative relationships. Uh, yeah. And this is something a lot of people might not think about when moving abroad if they do fit this mold. Um, to be honest, it's not something I actively thought about. But the fact that this, like my situation, I was very privileged to pick up and move abroad and not have to think about these things. Um, it's definitely not this way for all people. So just, you know, even if you are very privileged and you are cisgendered and uh, heterosexual, like be conscientious of the fact that like that is, it is in and of itself a privilege and you need to be aware of that moving abroad because not everyone has that same same ability. And I think along similar lines, racism is another issue that definitely needs to be thought about when you're moving. Um, yeah, I think there there might be this misconception that like, oh, well, you know, some countries in Europe aren't as racist as others. I was having a conversation with a friend the other day and he comes from Canada and he's a black man. And he was saying that there was, you know, people make comments that like, oh, um, racism doesn't exist in Germany. And he, he wanted to tell a story of how he was singled out in, in the Frankfurt airport for being black. And just because you don't hear about it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And so it's really important that you keep, you know, keep your eyes open. You know, this is something that, yes, it's in the media in the United States right now, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist in other countries. And don't ask the local white people if racism exists in their cult, yes. uh, country. <laughs> ask a person of color, because I, I remember literally having a conversation about this. There was um, a white person and there was a person of color in the same room. And I remember like the white person was like, oh, we don't have racism here. We're beyond all that. And I look over at my friend and they kind of give me this look like, mm. and I'm like, are you sure? For instance, in the Netherlands, they have this tradition called um, Black Pete, which is a cultural tradition. I'm using air quotes. You can't see them here. Cultural tradition of basically doing blackface for Christmas. And 
like as Americans, we're like, oh, oh, that's terrible. But the communication around that is really like decades behind. And there are people in the Netherlands who have serious beef with this. But the conversation has not moved to the point where this tradition can be phased out yet. It's, But that's not something I knew before moving to the Netherlands. That was something I learned once I, you know, got situated and had a social network. And we got to talking about the things that are capital P problematic about the Netherlands. Yeah. So definitely do your research, talk to, um, talk to people of color, see their, listen to their experiences and then make an educated decision on whether or not you're comfortable living in a culture like that. Um, let's talk about money. That money is always something people, uh, are curious about. I didn't fully realize the extent of how much lower my salary would be moving abroad. Um, and I'm happy to talk about my salary in Germany. I will not disclose my current salary. I don't know the legation around legality. Legation is not a word. Legality of that. Um, But just for a reference, when I joined IBM out of college, I was offered a starting salary, I think of around $72,000 a year. This was, it was an offer for the Armonk or the Poughkeepsie office. So the way it worked at IBM was like, if you got two offers internally, whoever had the highest offer salary wise, that's what you would get regardless of which location that you lived in. So although I took the job in Austin, Texas, I had actually gotten an offer for New York and New York is obviously a higher standard of living. So it was a higher salary. When I moved to Germany, I was making 55,000 euro a year, um, which was about 60, a little over $60,000 a year. Um, now, granted, I was moving laterally, so this was not a promotion. But overall, um, the compensation levels are much lower in Europe. Yeah, this is true. Um, one of the things I think this is important. I know we've got a situation uh, later on where we're going to talk about the logistics of moving abroad. But when you are looking at your different offers, you want to know if they're going to offer you any sort of assistance with your tax preparation because. If you're an American and you live abroad, you are taxed on your country based on your t- country of origin, not the country you're working in, like the rest of the world. Uh, so that makes your taxes super awkward, especially if you're between earning 40000 a year and earning a ridiculous six-figure salary. Uh, the way the taxes and such work is so convoluted. It really does feel like the United States is trying to drag all of its young professionals back to the country. It's like, no, either you are a a, um, a waiter or a barista on a year between college and high school, or you are a wealthy yacht owner, but everyone else come back to the United States right now. And you do need some tax help to figure out exactly how all these convoluted tax treaties between these different countries work. And you're going to be earning less on top of that. And you're not going to have vehicles like 401ks to dump huge sums of money into to be there for you when you need a million dollars worth of surgery when you're retired to a suburb in the United States. For like the earlier in your 20s, this might not make such a big difference. But as you like, like in your, your long term thinking, you've got some years where you can kind of figure out, do I want to leave the country and go all in on this lifestyle? Uh, living in the Bahamas or whatnot, or do I want to, you know, like head back to the United States and just start plowing money into my 401k and make that big fat six-figure salary that's so rare to find in countries with huge social social supports. 
these, I mean, I can't speak to what it's like working remotely from a Caribbean island. I know that the whole tax situation there is very different. But I can speak to what it looks like when you live in a beautiful country like the, the Netherlands or Germany. You, you do make less. The taxes are complicated. You don't have the same retirement vehicles available to you as you do in the United States. Um, and you really might end up thinking, if you want to do this long term, how are you going to, like, which country do you want to die in is basically what it comes down to. Yeah, and I'm going to turn it over to Ali in a second. But I just, to that point, um, while I was earning less in Germany, um, the social structure, like if I got sick, I didn't really have to pay much out of pocket. Um, taxes were definitely higher in Germany itself, but I was tax exempt in the US. So luckily, I didn't have to pay on my salary in Germany. But again, to Rachel's point, it does matter which country you're in. They all have separate agreements. Um, and also, like my living expenses were different. My rent in Germany was max a thousand euro, and that was very expensive for the area. I didn't have a car. Um, my food was so much lower. Um, so like, yes, you might be making less, but the standard of living is much different generally. Um, Ali, you have thoughts on taxes, so I'm going to turn it over to you. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So even in the United States, being a digital nomad is hard for tax purposes because you're kind of moving all over the place. Um, and so it's like, where do you even legally live? So I have an accountant, his name is Adam Newberg, and I can we can link him in the show notes, but his whole entire specialization is working with digital nomads. And he got on this call with me when I became a digital nomad and just like explained it all to me. It made me feel so much better. And it's such a cost savings as well. Like I know you have to pay an upfront amount to have an accountant, but he like has saved me so much money. Um did you know that if you do something like a speaking gig in a city that you can then write off some of your living expenses in that city afterwards if you are a digital nomad because it counts as like travel expenses to that area? These are the things that, I don't know, you can learn. Does he do foreigners abroad too? Yeah, yeah, I believe oh, so. I'm going to hire him. Yes, he, I, need, I need help. <laughs> yeah, it's so helpful and just takes so much stress off of the whole process. So highly recommend. Let's talk about logistics moving abroad because this was one of the things uh, in that section that we had noted down. But let's talk about relocation packages. Rachel, uh, what are your thoughts on relocation packages? You want a relocation package. I mean, I know I you could probably sell all your things and go abroad with just a pack. pack. Uh, you could do that. Or you could get a job with a company that has a relocation package and they send a team of people to pack up your entire apartment, put it on a boat and wait for you on the other side of the ocean. That is like the cost effective way to move abroad is to let someone else pay mm -hmm. for and handle that for you. That is the experience I've had. Um, and, and I would I've highly recommend it. <laughs> So I've done both. And let me quickly give you a rundown of some of the things that might be included in a relocation package, but also what it's like not to have one. So both IBM and Spotify provided a relocation package. And I'm not going to give like specific details, but I will tell you some of the things that might have been included. Um, if you have a car and it needs to be shipped, they will take care of that for you. They also might take care if you're moving, relocating with a partner. They might also take their car and their things, uh, something to ask about. They generally will pay for your travel there and back, or they're, you're not going back, but they'll pay for your travel there. Um, they might help you relocate your pets. They might give you... Uh, I had potentially 
I had two options when relocating furniture where either they would ship it for me or I could sell everything and they would give me a stipend to buy new furniture. Um, those are just a few of the items that they might you know, work on with you, as well as visa applications and whatnot. Um, when I joined LogMeIn, they didn't offer me relocation assistance mm-hmm. to a certain extent. They offered me visa assistance, which was invaluable to me because a lot of companies were not willing to invest in that right. for an American looking to move to Europe. Um, so that really was extremely valuable to me because the visa process can be very, very difficult and not knowing when to do things is is taxing. Um, so that was really valuable. But in terms of shipping things, I didn't ship a single thing over to Germany. I hired a pet relocation assistant. They were called pet relocation. They're wonderful. I highly recommend them and we'll link them in the show notes. Um, so they took care of all of the shots, immunizations, records, um, clearing customs for my pets. Mm. That was very, very helpful. It was kind of expensive. I think it was like 3000 for shoe cats to fly to Germany. Um, but in my experience, it's worth it because a lot of people don't know the customs or like the proper procedure and they'll get to the airport and be sent back. Wow. So that I do not recommend doing that. Um, but yeah, I sold everything when I moved to Germany and I just packed two suitcases. And that was really hard for me, to be honest. I was happy to get rid of a lot of crap, but also I had to give up a lot of sentimental items. So it, there are pros and cons to uh, selling things and, and to keeping your things, but... I highly recommend, uh, if possible, pushing for a relocation package. I, I agree. It should be considered like one of the benefits that's uh, helpful. And it should be mentioned that if you do the smart thing and you join a company to get... All right. So I um, I think, I think we, we talked a bit about this earlier. When you join a company, if you join in the United States, you're probably going to get a higher um, package. And that can include things like RSUs, stocks. And the stocks, they're like a one-time signing bonus, right? You get them in a big fat wad. And the package offered in the United States is almost always higher than what is going to be offered in the offices abroad. If you're cool with it, it makes more sense to start at an American company and then take a transfer to an international office. Usually that's a little dicier because once you join... They might not want to transfer you, but if you are internal and you get transferred, there is usually a relocation package with that. Um, So these are things to keep in mind if you're thinking, man, I really want to work for that London office, but maybe I should start in the New York office and then ask to be transferred to the London office. You might want to discuss that with the hiring manager before you go in. Mm -hmm. I have several colleagues who've done that at Spotify and it's been totally fine. Uh, I think that's a really great tip. Um, Let's talk quickly about how to actually search for international job postings because I get this question a lot. Um, I, when I was looking for jobs in Germany, I primarily use LinkedIn to find Mm -hmm. jobs. So make sure your LinkedIn and your resume are up to date uh, and that they are concise. LinkedIn was a really great tool for me. I also recommend, what was the other site I used? It was... Not Indeed, because Indeed is U.S. specific, I believe. Um, Zing is, so that's X-I-N-G, is the German version of LinkedIn. Um, They use that. So yeah, maybe that's a good idea. If you're looking to move to a specific country, maybe look up and see if they have their own version of a LinkedIn that people use to search for jobs. Um, But I would say LinkedIn was primarily my place to go. I would also recommend pulling on your social network. If you've traveled and spoken abroad, you probably have a very large international network. Or maybe you've worked with people who come from uh, backgrounds outside the United States. 
go look like I keep a basically like a big contacts Rolodex with notes about every person I've met. Uh, I don't mean that in a creepy way, but basically it's so I can remember like, oh, yes, Doris loves hot cocoa. I shall send her some cocoa to thank her for her help. Uh, But you should definitely mine your personal connections. If you know people who have either worked in that area you're looking for or have come from that area, you can ask them things like, so where are the local jobs happening? Do you know anybody? What is the site that people are using? Um, you definitely, like, the human connection really proves to be invaluable. That's where you're going to learn things about what the local culture is like, um, what what the career prospects in a different area are like. For instance, London is huge in fintech. If you don't like fintech, you probably won't be happy working in the long term in London. But you might need to talk to somebody local to figure that out. Highly agree. I think that's awesome. Yeah, that's how I got my job at Spotify was actually through Twitter. Um, so don't undervalue uh, your social network. I also get asked a lot, was there any difference in the interview process? And for me personally, no, there wasn't either was between Spotify and blog me and there were no differences. Um, I also interviewed at Google in Munich. Um, again, it's very straightforward in terms of having a recruiter phone call, having like a technical challenge, whether it's a take home assessment or like a coding challenge, having an onsite interview and then, uh, getting an offer potentially. So it's been the same for me. Yeah. I didn't have anything, any, interview differences. Rachel, have you had any differences? Not in the interview process. No. I mean, I always end up on a different interview process every time because I have such a varied background. Um, There is one thing I wanted to bring up that I didn't add to our outline before this started. Talk to some women in the local community. Um, If you you are a woman, uh, you definitely want to know What's your professional network going to look like? I say this because you mentioned Munich, and this totally reminded me. Oh, yeah, Munich. Beautiful place to visit. Gorgeous. I love Bavaria. I I have my own dirndl, like my people drinking beers in the mountains, eating sausages. It's my life. But but, um, you'll find that Munich is very traditional. Not a lot of women um, in high-powered positions there. A lot of women, like, it's a traditional place. A lot of the women in your social network probably going to be stay-at-home moms. Uh, not to default stay-at-home moms, but if you're like a a woman who wants mentorship from C-level women, you might not find them in Munich. And the same thing could be said about Switzerland. In Switzerland, the taxes are set up such that if you get married, it makes sense for the lower earning partner to quit their job and take care of the children. Usually that's the woman. Uh, that means when I visit Switzerland, once you get into your 30s, the professional scene of women tends to cool off a bit. Less events, fewer uh, people to hang out with who get you and know what you're going through. Uh, It's just you have to keep in mind that we have complex life cycles as humans and you want to know where you're falling on that path and what that looks like for you. Absolutely. I think this conversation has honestly helped me as an expat slash immigrant um, (laughs) with in terms of the conversations I should be having and the things I need to be aware Mm. of. But hopefully it also helped a lot of the listeners as well. Um, Let's wrap things up by talking about a couple of different questions that you might want to ask. Like once you've actually received an offer or before you're going to, um, or maybe even to the recruiter, um, here are some important questions that you should ask. the biggest one that I had when I was looking for jobs is, are you going to sponsor my visa? Because I had no way to get over there unless they sponsor my visa. And a lot of them said no. So that for me was something I asked in the recruiting interview because that's kind of a deal breaker for me. Rachel, what questions would you ask uh, a foreign employer? Do you support tax preparation for the first couple of years? 
And by the way, get these answers in writing. I actually once had someone, a recruiter, promise me that, yeah, tax prep is totally covered for your complicated three-country taxes. And uh, and then I actually got there, and they're like, whoopsies, that's for internal transfers only. And I was like, wait, no, you promised me. And they're like, do you have it in writing? And I was like, oh, my God, I hate you, recruiters. You're evil. Um, so make sure you get it in writing. Also, like, are you going to offer support for my partner, uh, for my children? Some places... They'll offer support for partners, but what they really mean is they offer some um, counseling for housewives to, you know, how to fit in your local community. If you have like a partner who is also in in tech and you might be looking for a different kind of counseling, that might not be very useful for them to fit in and reorient. So you want to ask about their support programs for partners, for children, make sure it aligns with your family's needs. Absolutely. Um, Allie, do you have any like parting advice for people looking to become a digital nomad? Ooh, that's a good question. I think I've mostly put my advice in here. I think the biggest one is the accountant. That especially, I have a side company, which is why it's more relevant for me. I think if I just had a normal remote job, it would be less relevant. But if you have like an LLC and have side work, then it becomes really important. But What else? Airbnb, if you stay over a month, you get a huge discount. So make sure that you're usually staying over a month in a place rather than doing a week in a place or three weeks in a place would be like the worst of all worlds because it's going to be more expensive and you're you're there for almost that amount of time. That's pretty much all that I have. I've got one last uh, pro tip for people listening because I know we move abroad for many different reasons and sometimes we do it for love. A piece of advice I got very long after I'd moved was when you're moving abroad, when when you're moving, ask yourself if you're moving because you want to or because you want to be with someone else. Usually couples are more successful when both partners are moving because they want to be in the same place. And it's really important to level with yourself for what reasons you're moving, both of you. Um, so that is something that I think if I'd had that advice earlier, some things would have gone different for me, differently for me. And I just wanted to pass that on. I fully agree with that, especially as someone who did move for love. But I will also say, if you do decide to move for love, um, make sure that you have your own support system. Like, make sure that you find your own niche, you find your own job, your own social circles, because that, like, if something were to happen and you are no longer together, you have your own like your own reason to be there. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't move home, but, um, I, yeah, after going, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life in terms of how I've handled relationships and situations. Um, that says nothing about the other person. That's just me personally. I had this like view in my mind of I'll move abroad and everything will be romantic and you know, there will never be any issues. Um, and I have definitely changed my view on, on that, but I think having your own why to be there and not, you're just moving for a person, like have your own justification and you'll be much happier in general. And it's much healthier. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the top four most stressful things you can do to a relationship moves, deaths, births. And I forget what the fourth one is. It's probably, Oh, I think it's like illness. Um, And that can be a lot, you know, and it can put a relationship in a tender place to be going through so much change together You really need to have your own North Star and, like you said, your own network so that 
no matter what happens, you can be flexible and resilient in that situation. Definitely. Because I know I did this. Like if, if we ever had a disagreement, I would always fall back on that. I gave up everything to be here for you. And that is so unhealthy and so wrong. Um, so please learn from my mistakes. <laughs> yeah. In any case, that's a sad note, but let's wrap things up with shout outs. That's a little bit higher of a note to end on. So Allie, what's your shout out for this week? So my shout out is to my dog, Blair. And I think it links into this episode because for her, most of her life, I've been moving around every month or so. And so she can just adapt to anything. And it's amazing. She's so good at staying in different places and meeting different people and dealing with change. And she's just such a little cutie. So she's my shout out. That's awesome. What about you, Rachel? I'd like to give a shout out to my my job, actually. Um, we live in some really weird times right now, but I love my coworkers and I feel like I've been well supported by my company. Uh, I know that Facebook is hiring in London and in the United States. So if you're curious about maybe what roles we have available, I guess there'll be a link in the show notes and feel free to hit me up if you'd like to chat about it or ask for a referral. Absolutely. And uh, kind of similarly to Allie, my shout out is going to go to my family for, um, you know, maybe thinking that I'm nuts to pick up and move abroad, but for supporting me regardless. Um, yeah, that's been an having a supportive family, especially during tough times um, and going through major life changes mm-hmm. has been really invaluable to me. So yeah, I just, you know, once again, thank you so much, Rachel. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, and if you liked this episode, tweet about it. We really love reading your feedback. But additionally, we're giving away a copy of Rachel's book, Animation at Work. Uh, she wrote a book. It's fantastic. I bought it and I read it. It's, uh, it's a book apart, which they're very, very great book publishing company. Oh, yeah. I don't know exactly what they're called. Yeah, but they're amazing. And I've read Rachel's book. It's awesome. So we're going to give away a copy this month to this month, this week to one of our tweeters. Um, And we post new podcasts every Monday. So make sure to subscribe to be notified and leave us a review. Have a nice day. Bye.